Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 29th of February, Andrew Bunt taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions, where Andrew looks at the doctrine of humanity. Andrew is the assistant pastor at King's Church Hastings and a regular writer and teacher on various theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. We should move on to the doctrine of humanity. We're talking about humans. This is, we might call this theological anthropology. God talk about the anthropos, the human being. And we're just asking the question, what does it mean to be human? And that is a vitally important and uh, uh, yeah, important topic for us to think about. Often in, in works of theology, you'll find the doctrine of humanity follows the doctrine of God, because it's the next most important thing, and who we are flows so much from who God is. And I'm very convinced that this is one of the most important doctrines for the modern Western church to wrestle with. Because most contemporary issues of discussion and debate, ethical issues, cultural issues, are ultimately about different views on anthropology. So the biggest disagreements between Christians and non-Christians at the moment, things on sexuality, on gender, start of life, end of life, human flourishing, all ultimately come back to how do you answer the question, what does it mean to be human? And what your anthropology, your understanding of humanity is. So it's hugely important. What we'll do in our time now, we'll focus primarily on what the Bible says in answer to the question, what does it mean to be human? But we'll also have the opportunity to do a little few bits on what does culture say? What does the, the kind of non-Christian secular world around us say? And comparing and contrasting the two will rather help us to uh, understand some of what's going on in the world around us. We have some of those conflicts and what we need to remake sure we have got and what we are saying and living out in order to take hold of how this helps us respond to things going on around us. The first and most foundationally important thing on this is that humanity, we are created. Humanity as created. We are the created. We are not the creator. And who we are, therefore, must be defined in relation to the one who created us. And because we are creatures, we are placed in a position subordinate to the creator, and we owe him uh, worship and obedience. That's just kind of a natural uh, outworking of being those created by the creator. We can then ask, well, why were we created? We were created ultimately to bring glory to God. We weren't created out of any need of God. God doesn't need anything. Paul's really clear in his speech in Acts 17 about that. God doesn't live in temples made by man. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything. He didn't create us because he was lonely. He wasn't lonely. For all of eternity past, God has existed as Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the Trinity with a perfect relationship of inner Trinitarian love. He wasn't lonely and in need. He creates us to bring glory to himself, to show how good he is and to have that reflected back to himself. But glorifying God, for us, is not about dry duty. It's not going to be, oh, yeah, we're created to glorify God. We better do that. Actually, we find that we as humans, we um, get to glorify God by enjoying him. We find fullness of life in glorifying God. We find joy in glorifying God. That's what fullness of life is, which is promised fullness of life. That's why Psalms can say in your presence a fullness of joy. How lovely is your dwelling place? Because it's with God and in relationship with him, bringing glory to him that we truly thrive because that's what we're made to do. And this is really vital for understanding the gospel. And I think it's something we need to recognise in the modern West today. You can't understand the concept of sin if you don't understand the concept of obligation. You know, until you get that you should live a certain way and worship God, you can't get that you've not met that obligation and therefore you have sinned. And so often we start our kind of gospel presentation, preaching, conversation with God loves you, but you have sinned. But people around us have no way of fathoming that they have sinned and what sin is because they have no concept of having obligations. So until people understand that they are created and therefore have inherent obligations to their creator, they can't understand they've not met those obligations. Is that Christians or Full, well, so no person can understand that they've not met obligations, they don't know they've got obligations. You only know you've got the obligations when you know you've got a creator. And so the reason we struggle with preaching the gospel often to people who have no Christian background is they have no concept of, I have obligations to my creator, therefore they have no concept of, oh, I have not met those obligations. 
So I think gospel preaching needs to take a step back and start with creation and obligation so that sin makes sense because we're not in a culture that people understand what sin is. That's why it's such a foreign concept to people. And we're seeing a few places really one of the things that has most shaped secular thinking, influences secular, secular uh, ethics, is non-theistic evolutionary biology. So the idea that we're purely of result of random chance, natural mutations and stuff. Um, it takes all the purpose out of the body, out of the created world and such like. There is no, you have no obligations to anyone if you're just the result of random chance. Your only obligation is to yourself and your survival, survival of the fittest. Fundamentally changes the way you view the world and how you should live your life. The gospel doesn't make sense against evolutionary biology if God's not involved. You've got to have a creator, whether that is through evolution or not, it doesn't matter. You've got to have a creator and obligation. So for um, gospel preaching, it's really important. So sin is failing in those obligations, and that's why salvation ultimately is being restored to a life of glorifying God. It's being restored to fulfilling those obligations. Humanity in Genesis 1 to 3, I said on the Genesis stuff, Genesis 1 to 3 are just the most fundamentally important chapters in the whole of the Bible, and that's usually the case when we're talking about what it means to be human. So there are a few kind of key points we can draw out. Some of them we would have mentioned already. Humanity is definitely presented as the pinnacle of God's creation. We said it in Genesis 1, it's the longest part of the account, the only bit where God says, let us make, the only bit created in his image, we're the only ones given dominion. Only after humans are created is creation not just good, but is very good. And in Genesis 2, focus is writing on the creation of humans. And we're the ones given the role of working and keeping the garden. We're the ones given the commands about the tree. We're the ones with, um, well, with human companionship and also with relationship with God. We're the ones who name the animals. Humans are very clearly the pinnacle, but as we said, not the goal. The goal is that humans and God would enjoy life together in Sabbath rest. Humanity, we see in the chapters, is called to rule. We have a, a role to play as God's representatives on the earth. You see that and there be fruitful and multiplying, fill and subdue the earth, have dominion over it in Genesis 1. You see in the command to Adam to work and to keep the garden in Genesis 2. And actually we're not just here to do nothing, we're here to perform a role, to be God's representatives, to exert his rule on the earth. And that's something you can see traced to the Bible. Psalm 8 will celebrate that. That's the one I you know. What is my man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? It says there, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Psalm 8 is a creation psalm celebrating the wonderful responsibility we as humans have been given. And then interestingly, Hebrews 2 will pick that up and apply that to Jesus. And there's the idea of whereas we as humans all fail in that task, Jesus is the one who supremely takes that up, who succeeds in that role of being a representative ruler for God on earth. And then Matthew 28, arguably, the Great Commission of going to make disciples, is the recasting of that Genesis 1 commission to rule and, or to fill and multiply and rule and subdue. It's the recasting of that within the kingdom of God following Jesus. So we are the role, we fail, Jesus succeeds, we're brought into Jesus. We then, we take on that role um, in the Great Commission, in the mission, or called us to, so when you get to the end of the Bible story, we're told that we will reign in the new creation. They will know, uh, Genesis 22, verse 5, they will, know, they will need no light or lamp of sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We will reign, alluding back to Daniel. Humans are created to rule. Linked to that, humans are created to work and to rest. This is really important and really interesting. Work is a good thing which comes before enters, sin enters the world. It's very easy for us to think, many of us may even think of work as a bad thing we have to do because the world's gone wrong. Work is what humans are made to do. Not paid employment necessarily, but work, constructive use of our time to benefit others is what we're created to do. It's there in the Genesis 128 and that kind of ruling, subduing thing is about working, I think. It's definitely there in Genesis 2 of working and keeping the garden. When the Creation is perfect, there's still a role for humans to do. And it's certainly true that when sin enters the world, work gets harder. Some of the curses God brings are on work, but it's still a good thing. Work is necessary for human flourishing. Humans are created to use their time constructively and to benefit other people. I think that's why the people, you know, you hear these stories time and time again, are people who win huge payouts on the lottery. 
and financially the life of not working and living off your winnings is nowhere near as fulfilling as people think it will be. It usually goes really badly wrong because we're meant to thrive by people who constructively being people who constructively use our time. But rest is also a good and very important part of God's good creation. Sabbath rest with God, we said, the end goal of creation. And we see in Exodus, the Ten Commandments, that God's resting on the seventh day is meant to be a model for our resting and uh, the kind of pattern of that. Work's necessary for human flourishing, but so also is rest. We need to get both, we need to get the balance, we need to get them in place. And then humans are relational creatures. We're creatures who are designed to be into in relationship, to have interactions, and that's both with God and with other people. We need both of those relationships to truly thrive. We're designed to be in relationship with God. The fact that we're created in the image of God probably speaks to that. That probably speaks to the kind of relational connection that we're designed to have with God. And so in Genesis 2, we saw, portrays that incredibly intimate relationship between God and between Adam and Eve. And then the awful thing in Genesis 3 is that relationship is damaged. You know, you're meant to get how important the relationship is by seeing how awful it is when that ends and the people get sent away. We're a relational creature designed to be in relationship with God, but we're also designed to be in relationship with other people. Even the most hardened introvert is designed by God to need a relationship with other people to truly thrive and flourish. That may be indicated in Genesis 1, the fact that God says, let us make in our image the fact that he's presumably alluding to some of the level of plurality within God and the Trinity and the fact that he's within himself as one God, a communal being, is meant to say actually humanity will reflect that uh, kind of need for communal, that, that communal nature which is seen in God. And again, certainly Genesis 2 then makes it explicit. It's not good for the man to be alone. In the story, of course, that becomes the springboard for the first marriage. But I think it's legitimate to say the application is broader than just marriage. And arguably, it's the first marriage because that's where children start and then human community starts. That's arguably the start of human community um, as the answer to the problem of human aloneness. Every one of us is created with a God-given need for human relationship, for human love, and human community together. This obviously is so important for us in a very individualistic society. It shouldn't surprise us that in a, a, well, that a very individualistic society has grown to be a society that has a humongous problem with loneliness. And it shouldn't be a surprise that increasingly studies have shown that the impact of loneliness on health can be as great as smoking and drinking lots. And, you know, it's actually that non-physical action, in a sense, the thing of loneliness has huge impacts on mental, even on physical health, actually, heart health and stuff. That shouldn't surprise us because Genesis tells us it's not good for man to be alone. We're created to be in community. And finally, on this little bit, humans are sexed and sexual creatures. So we are sexed creatures in the sense that we have a biological sex. We are created male or female. That's what Genesis 1.22 says. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's interesting to note that is obviously true of most animals. Not all animals. It's true of most animals. And the author knows that because in Genesis 6, he'll talk about male and female animals and the story of the flood. But he doesn't say in Genesis 1. He wants to specify humans are created male and female. And he's telling us that's an important thing because of that fact. Some theologians would say it's potential that that diversity of male and female within humanity, so you've got humanity is one thing, and the diversity of male or female and female within that reflects the diversity within the Godhead of one God but three persons. And there's various kind of pros and cons to that kind of view, but maybe one of the ways we are like God is by the diversity and unity of male and female in the unity of humanity. Both male and females are created in the image of God. That's very important for us to affirm. It's important they're placed side by side in the text, that both males and females are equally in the image of God, have equal worth and dignity before God. And male and female are, are given identities. This is also really important, and again, it's linked to the image of God. We're, we'll come back to the image of God after our break, and we'll see the image of God is a given identity. You don't have to act a certain way to be in the image of God. You don't have to perform it. You don't have to achieve it in some way. It's a given identity. It's true of you because God has given it to you, said it over you. The same is true of being male or female. It's a, a parallel identity. Uh, in the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he made them. Being male or female is not something we have to perform. It's not something we make a reality by how we live. You don't become a man by acting like a man. It's not that you have to try and reach some standard to be a real man when you're born with someone who's male. Actually, it's something you are 
what God says to you in your creation, what God says over you in the creation of you, in the creation of your body, is something you then get to express. You don't have to attain it, you don't have to perform to achieve it. It's something you get to express of who God has made you. And that obviously is very relevant kind of to current discussions. It's vital that we recognise this, that our sex identity is static, it's God-given, but actually that then we, from that, have the freedom, knowing who we are, as male or female, have the freedom to be how we are. And so when we talk about kind of gender and transgender and a lot of the different conversations in our culture at the moment often comes down to very narrow definitions of what it means to be a man or a woman. Lots of stereotypes, which are not biblical, are not logical, are usually not true, statistically speaking. And so if we don't fit in the box, we then begin to have levels of discomfort about our gender. I should put a disclaimer here that gender dysphoria, which is the medical diagnosis of someone who might identify as trans, isn't as simple as recognising stereotypes, so please don't hear a simplistic answer. But actually on the, on the kind of less serious level, many of us just feel we're not a real man or a real woman, we don't fit into those stereotypical boxes, and we feel we've got to be a certain way to really be a man or really be a woman. Actually the liberating message of Genesis 1 is, you're male or female, a man or woman, because God has made you that way, it's who you are, now you can be how you are. So you can embrace your likes and your dislikes, and it doesn't change that. So for me, it's been really uh, impacting really in the last few years. I've never felt like a real man, never felt like I met the cut, hated stag dudes, all that kind of stuff. I hated any all-male context and just felt very unsafe and out of place. And just reflecting on Genesis 1 and realizing, hey, no, I'm a man because God says I'm a man, and therefore that's who I am, it gives me the freedom to be how I am, has been so liberating. liberating. I can embrace my love of musicals and of Downton Abbey and of afternoon tea and it doesn't change that I'm a man and the fact I hate rugby and beer and all that kind of stuff and paintballing and all these stag do type things doesn't matter I'm a man because God says I'm a man and I can be free to be how I am this is wonderfully wonderfully liberating truth we need to take hold of so I have this deep conviction the the gender binary of male and female is not oppressive and damaging as society says it is it's wonderfully liberating and freeing We've got to have confidence in what the Bible says, that it's good for living out, good for fullness of life. We're sexed creatures, but also we're sexual beings. We're creatures created with sexual desires. Implied, I think, in Genesis 1, in the male and female he created them, now go, multiply, fill, subdue the earth and such like. That requires sex, to to multiply, fill the earth. Jesus actually links Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in that way. He links male and female he created them, And therefore a man will leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, become one flesh. He says part of the reason we created male and female is for one man, one woman in marriages. Um, And so Genesis 1 does suggest there's an important link between sex and procreation. And that's interesting to say. One of the main reasons for the shifting sexual ethics in the world around us actually is contraception. Basically, if, if good contraception hadn't arrived, the sexual revolution would never have happened. It couldn't have done, because sex was too costly. The chance of having a child and the impact that makes on your life just doesn't allow you to have the kind of sexual liberation the sexual revolution talks about. So yes, there are philosophical elements, but ultimately, if technology hadn't been there, the sexual revolution could never have happened. The sexual revolution, or contraception, has cheapened sex, makes it easier, cheaper, less risky to have sex, which means it can, you can radically change your sexual ethics. So we do need to reclaim the fact that Genesis 1 links sex and procreation very importantly. Now, we could talk about this for ages. I don't think that means contraception is always wrong. I do think it means probably every marriage relationship should be open to the possibility of God providing children at some point. Of course, it also doesn't mean that a marriage where it's known that the, the couple won't be able to naturally conceive is illegitimate. That's not what this text is saying. That's not the kind of point of view I'm putting across. But when we remove procreation from sex, we create problems for ourselves and sexual ethics. And culture's done it, but so has the church, and that's caused us some problems too. And Genesis 2 shows us that we're sexual beings, and sex is designed to be reserved for one man, one woman marriages, a one flesh union, or actually reunion of what was separated. So you had the woman created out of man, and the very next verse, you had the man and woman united as one flesh. Adam says, she at last is flesh of my flesh, flesh taken out of my flesh, reunited, now we are one flesh together. It's a reunion. That's why marriage, biblically, is between one man and one woman. The difference is important because of what it's doing there, and that is all portraying a picture of Christ and the church. Sex and marriage are very sexual desires. I'm meant to speak to us about the relationship between Christ and the church. Our sexual desires and the intensity with which they can come, it's meant to speak to us about the intensity of that love that God has for us. 
we're sexual beings and that is a, a good thing. Um, uh, it's part of what it means to be human, part of how God's created us. And ultimately, that's about Jesus. It's all pointing to him. Let's pause there. Coffee break. We'll come back. Let's be ready to start at 11.35. Have a bit of a chat while you're thinking of kind of what struck out to you, what you want to ask about, and we'll hopefully start with some Q&A. Do come and join us with Joe and Coffee. We'll start a few moments uh, for any reflections, any comments you want to make, questions you want to ask on the start of Dr. Humanity, Humanity and Creation particularly, as we've been thinking about. Anything I wants to bring up on that? What have you found most interesting in the Doctrine of Humanity so far, or surprising? Or, uh... All of it. Better than none of it. Uh, <laughs> great. It doesn't matter what we think we know. There's always so much more. Well, yeah, it's true. Yeah, it was more to explore, more to say. Uh, yeah, wrestle with so much so. Okay. If there's no questions, let's come on to humanity in the image of God. Because you may have noticed that the one thing which we didn't cover just now when we did humanity in Genesis 1 to 3, humanity in creation, is the image of God, which is, of course, arguably a hugely, hugely, uh, one of the most hugely important things about what it means to be human. It's also a very debated thing of what actually does it mean. And Genesis 1, we know, tells us that every human being is created in the image of God. And <clears throat> there are different ways of understanding what does it actually mean. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? And broadly speaking, there are three types of answer to that question. Some people give a substantive answer, which says that the image of God is about some sort of element of a person, part of the substance of a person and kind of how we are. So the early church fathers were very keen on the idea that it's our rationality. The thing that marks us as in the image of God, whereas animals aren't, is the ability to think and reason rationally. Um, others, I mean, Martin Luther, the reformer, for example, said that original righteousness is the image of God. And so he said the image of God was completely lost when humans sinned in Genesis 3. Substantive, it's, it's kind of part of a person. Relational is, the image is something to do with our ability to relate to other people. And relational readings will often link it to the fact that we're created male and female. So it will say kind of the, the potentiality for male-female relationships or the, the relational nature, the draw in us to relate to other people is what the image is about. And the final view is a, a functional view, that the image actually is a fun, about a function humans perform, a role that we uh, play, something we do. And so in the context, the most obvious kind of option for that is the role, the function of multiplying and filling and subduing. Some people say, what does it mean to the image of God? It means to be one who's given that commission and who's called to actually do that thing. And so generally speaking, most understandings of the image of God are either substantive, part of person, relational, about relating to other people, or functional, about something people do. So I want to take a few moments in your tables, in your groups, to think, what do you think it means to be created in the image of God? What's actually the, the content of the image? Is it one of those three? Do you think it's a mixture? Do you think it's none of them, something else? And, and why do you think that? Share with each other why is it that you take a particular view on that. A few moments on that and we'll see what a few groups think. Okay. Let's, uh, let's see if we can get a gauge for the room and any conclusions we may or may not have reached. I'm not done for it. Let's do a straw poll. If you had to pick one of the three as to which one you go for, so put your hand up if you go for a substantive reading. Define substantive, please. Uh, it's the one where it's about an element or a person, like rationality or original righteousness or something that is true of humans and a quality of a human, I guess, is the image. Anyone going to take that position? Well, oh, quite a minority of you. Well done. Have the courage of your convictions. A relational perspective? Okay, small handful. And the um, functional perspective? Still a small handful. So most of us are quite bamboozled, I haven't got a clue what we think. It's fine. I, I don't fit into a box either with this, actually, so maybe it was an unfair, unfair kind of thing. Um, would you feel confident to say a little bit why you kind of sided more on the substantive thing? <laughs> I like that, yes. Unlike what most people did. Uh, yeah, no, okay. Mm. 
God's character, I think we have in all of us. You're right, it's quite easy to find things that we think, well, that would make us like God, and does seem to distinguish us from things that aren't human. So it's quite easy to have loaded them there. So I think, so that's quite a common view, and that's why I read actually they're kind of, feels quite logical, quite natural. So great. Um, relational was particularly, I think, hearing here. Anyone want to tell us a little bit of why? Oh, you're going to cut. Yeah, yeah, well done. It's a safe group. You're recruiting already. Anybody here want to share why that was? Anybody here with me? Yeah. Yeah, relationship is unquestionably vitally important in what God cares about and what God's doing and stuff. Yep, good. It's almost about to say something there. I think I had, yeah. So it's a corporate identity. Yeah, and it's just like um, we've been going through John in our church and like the idea of being one with God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, yeah, very good reasoning. And then functional, there were one or two hands. Anyone want to argue for the functional perspective? I can't remember where those hands were. There's something over here, I think. Go on, do you remember where they were? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Or you now, you've all been convinced by the relational, haven't you? No one wants to kind of get confidential. Let's turn over and let's see what the Bible says. This is a good uh, next step to go. Well, actually, what does the biblical evidence say? The image of God is actually only mentioned explicitly, I think, one, two, three, four, another, so five times. Um, it might be alluded to elsewhere, but that doesn't mean it's not significant. It's very positioned at the beginning of the Bible, if nothing else, speaks of its huge significance. And... We can just quickly zip through and draw some key points each time it's mentioned. Mentioned first, of course, there in, in Genesis 1, where, frankly, the meaning isn't made explicit. The text doesn't tell us. That's why this is so debated. Some people say, well, the relational one is really supported here because of the image of God he created, the male and female he created. them. So some people say that means the image of God is the male and female thing. Some people say, no, the functional is really supported here because you have the image of God, and the verse before, you've had... God's kind of plan to give dominion and authority to the humans. The verse after, you get God's command to be fruitful and give and to have dominion and um, authority. So they say, well, the, the image is like uh, bookended, bracketed by the commission given to humans. Both of which could be true, but also both of those things of the relational element and the function or the role we have in Genesis 1 there could be true without being the meaning of the image. I think we need more evidence to prove that's what it means to be the image of God. It could be that humans are in the image of God and they're meant to be relational beings and they're meant to perform this role. We don't know that is the image. And I think as you go through further, that shows that they're not actually linked in directly. Genesis 5 is interesting because not only is Adam said to be created in the image of God, but Seth, the son of Adam, the line goes through, is said to be in the likeness, one of the words used in Genesis 1, of Adam. Which can't really be a relational thing. Seth being in the image of Adam can't mean he's a relational being in particular. There's nothing in the text to indicate that. There's no indication of plurality in Adam or anything like that. It can't really be functional. There's no indication that Seth takes on the job of his dad. That's just not kind of said. The, the meaning seems to be quite simply family resemblance. Like father, like son. We kind of see it all around us. We get that very easily. And so often people who make a substantive argument, or take a substantive perspective, will argue from here. They'll say, well, clearly there's family resemblance between God and humans, and so the things that are true of humans and true of God, and particularly things that then aren't true of other animals, are what is true of um, what it means to be in the image. Um, <clears throat> there are some problems with that, in that how do you decide which things are the things that make the image? Uh, Grudem is fascinating with this. You read Grudem's systematic theology. He has like 18 different things, which are the similarities between God and humans. Only in two of the sections does he quote the Bible, and both of them are pretty unconvincing uses of um, how it's linked to the image. So I think Grudem is gone. Oh, yeah, this means humans are like God. Well, it's all the ways that humans are like God. So even the fact the Bible never indicates that that's what the image of God is, that's what it's going to be. You kind of have your empty vessel or you put into whatever you want. You also have the problem of... What if, those, what if there are some people who don't have the particular characteristic you choose? Are they not in the image of God? So if we choose rationality, what about those who for various reasons aren't able actually to think rationally? 
if we choose you know, the ability to communicate, what about those people who aren't able to communicate? Are they not in the image of God? And as we'll see, because of why the image of God is there, that's a very dangerous step to take. So I think the substantive view is quite dangerous, actually. So we need to look elsewhere. Genesis 9.6, the image of God is used as the reason why capital punishment should be used in cases of murder. The implication clearly being you shouldn't kill people because they're made in the image of God. So here the image is acting as, as like a safeguard. Because they're in the image of God, their life is worthy of preservation, of protection. The same kind of thing happens in James 3, probably an extension of Genesis 9, where we're told not to curse people. The implication is you shouldn't curse people with your tongue because they're made in the image of God. Because they're made in the image of God, they're worthy of the preservation and the protection of their life. They're also worthy of honour and of dignity, and they shouldn't be cursed. We shouldn't speak negative things over them. So in both those two places, it seems that this image is just something that is just fundamentally is true of every human, and is, there is a safeguard, as a, a marker of protection. So my personal view, a bit of a non-standard view, I often have non-standard views, is that the content or meaning of the image is never specified. It is some, there is some sort of family likeness between us and God. I think Genesis 5 means it must have some idea of family likeness between us and God. But the content is never specified. But the effect is very clear. The fact is that every human ever conceived is in the image of God. And because of that, every human life is worthy of preservation and protection. Every human life is worthy of honour and worthy of dignity. So it's kind of unspecified ways that we're like God. But... The important thing is actually not what the image is, it's what the image is meant to do, the impact that it's meant to have. That then leads us to a very important question, is the image of God lost or distorted or damaged when we sin? Lots of theologians think it is. They think that when sin enters the world, because we're all born into sin, actually the image of God is partially there, it's not fully there, or even it's not there at all. Martin Luther, the reformer, because he thought original righteousness was what the image was, because that's lost the minute we sin, he thought, actually, the image is completely lost at that point. And the argument made here is people say, well, in the New Testament, salvation is talked of as being restored to the image of God, being conformed to the image of God. Therefore, the argument is the image must have been lost. It's arguing the kind of problem from the solution that's there. But I think there are very good reasons to think that the image is not affected at all by sin. One is that scripture just never states that the image of God is lost or damaged or distorted by sin. It just literally never says it. The other is that when the image is mentioned after the fall, and four of the five references um, to it are after the fall, when sin is entered the world, there is never any hint that the image has been damaged. In Genesis 9, James 3, 1 Corinthians 11, and Genesis 5, the implication is there is much in the image of God there as they were in Genesis 1. There's never any hint that that has changed, really. And the texts which are read as salvation being about restoration to the image of God, actually I think are better read as being about conformity to Christ. Christ is the image of God in the sense of God incarnate, the, the perfect example, perfect representation of God and of humanity, and that we're conformed to his image. So it's not actually primarily Genesis 1 thing, it's a Jesus thing, it's a being shaped and conformed to Jesus. And I think this is vitally, vitally important. Because if in scripture the image of God is the thing that means the human life is worthy of preservation and protection and worthy of honour and dignity, if the image can be damaged or lost by sin, you can legitimately ask the question, well, how damaged can it get before the life is not worthy of preservation and protection and worthy of honour and dignity? If we say the image of God is damaged or even destroyed and taken away, we're taking away the very safeguard that God has put to protect human life. It's, I think, a very dangerous thing to do. God's put this seal on every human of protection, and then we take it away, potentially, if we kind of say that, which is very dangerous to do. So <clears throat> I think it's very important that we recognise the image isn't damaged, isn't changed, and recognise what its function is, and that we heed to that. And that's a good point just to talk very briefly about something called personhood theory. In Biblical thinking, we have the image of God as the marker which marks someone's life as worthy of protection and preservation. In secular thinking, secular ethics, there's something called personhood, that you are deemed a person, and if you are deemed a person, your life is worthy of preservation and protection. Because what a secular view of humanity does is it separates off a human being from a person. So, well, it's not even true. So, yeah, they're separate. I was going to say all, human, all persons are human beings. That's not even true. You might come to that. A human being is a material thing. It's the body. It's the part of you. 
a human being on its own has no moral rights. So a living human body has no moral rights, which in law it doesn't, actually. It's the external trappings of us. It's not valued, it's not important, it's dispensable. You can get rid of it, you can change it. But the person, which some people say kind of the internal part of a person, is non-material. The real being is the non-material in the body, as it were. The person has moral rights. So in law, a person has the right to life. It's a human right, a right to life, the preservation and protection of their life. The person is deemed the true self. We hear that language a lot. Our true self dwells inside of ourselves. Our bodies aren't important. The true self is what's inside. The person is valued and is not dispensable. And so to be a human being, a living human being with personhood, is to have the right to life. That's why we have laws against murder, because they're a person with a right to life. That's why we object to suicide, even if someone wants to kill themselves. Because we say, no, you have to pay your person, you have personhood, you have the right to your life being preserved and protected. But it is possible in secular thinking to be a living human being who is not a person. Personhood is a separate thing, and thus not to have the right to life. And so the question becomes, what's the distinction? What, has, what does the living human being have to have in order to be the person? People say things like consciousness or self-consciousness, rationality, autonomy, the ability to communicate. And the places where this hits, rubber hits the road, as it were, are in discussions about abortion and discussions about euthanasia. So let's take euthanasia as an example. If you, or if personhood is rooted in something other than being human, then some living adult human beings may not qualify to have the protection and preservation of their life. And actually, as soon as we allow euthanasia, which is kind of what Peterson calls mercy killing, so ending someone's life for them, or assisted suicide, helping someone to end their own life, as soon as we do that, we're saying this currently living human being is not a person whose life is worthy of preservation and protection. Because we're saying their life can be ended or they can be helped to do that. So they're living, they're a human being, but they're not a person, they don't have personhood. And that's... Even if we don't think of it that way, that is what's happening. You, you can't affirm euthanasia without saying this person is living currently, but their life isn't worthy of preservation and protection, and therefore we're going to end it. That's true even if it's voluntary. People say, well, no, it's okay if it's a voluntary thing, but that's not true because we oppose suicide. If we really believe it's okay to end your life when you want to, we wouldn't, as a culture, rightly oppose and care for people and look out for people who want to end their own life. The difference in euthanasia and suicide is we think the person who wants to commit suicide, we think they have personhood. We think their life is worth living. They're worthy of preservation and protection. The person who we're considering euthanasia for, we might not, because maybe they're not autonomous. Maybe they can't communicate. Maybe they're not conscious. So those things become the thing which mark a person rather than a human being. And because of the underlying logic, this is very dangerous in two ways. One is if you say, yes, euthanasia for someone who's unable to communicate anymore is acceptable, you're saying they're no longer a person worthy of protection because they can't communicate. Well, then you have to ask the question, why are the lives of others who can't communicate uh, worthy of protection and preservation? This is why, rightly, dis uh, disability rights groups are very strongly against the legalisation of euthanasia because they know that the moral logic underneath puts many people's lives in danger. It's a very serious thing. It's also why if you have any legalisation of euthanasia or assisted suicide, it's a very small step from voluntary, as in the person's requested it, to involuntary. Because if you accept this person's request to end their life because they can't look after themselves, you're saying being able to look after yourself is the mark of a person deserving of protection and preservation. You're saying legally it's fine, therefore, them to end their lives. Well, then it's a tiny step to say this person hasn't requested that their life be ended, but actually they're not able to look after themselves, so they don't have personhood, so we can legally end their life for them. So actually, the, the underlying philosophy, uh, the kind of ethics that's going on, is very dangerous. And so what you see is personhood in our culture is a thing that means this life's worthy of preservation and protection. And personhood can come and go in a sense. There are not, well, and then there are not clear parameters. Some people, I mean, some people go as far as to say that um, that's why it's not true that all persons are human beings. Some people think that some um, monkeys have personhood and some human beings don't because of the abilities they respectively do and don't have. That's as radical as some ethicists will go. And so if you look at the Bible, what's the biblical version of personhood? It's the image of God. What's the thing that means this human being, living human being, the life's worthy presentation, protection and preservation is the image of God. The image of God acts in the same way a person who does in secular ethics, 
but the image of God is based on the word of God spoken over us at creation. It cannot change. It cannot be lost through sin. And so it's vitally, vitally important when it comes to start of life and end of life ethics. That's a very quick um, introduction to a very complex topic, but hopefully you can bring some of that actually seeing then how comparing secular and biblical views of a human suddenly has very big impacts for very real life issues in our world around us. Um, any, you'll have a discussion in a moment in a minute, so you might want to discuss it before you ask questions, but any questions or clarifications on personhood or the image? Yeah, higher. Great question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this peculiar thing of let us wait, let who, what's going on. Various options. Some people think God's talking to the, the um, heavenly courts, so talking to angels. <clears throat> the problem being, we're not created in the image of angels. So that can't, wouldn't be let us. It's let me make, you know, while you're here, let me make people in my image. It wouldn't go work. Some people say it's like the, the royal, or an equivalent of the royal we, like in English, you the royal we, where you use the plural, even though it's the singular, it's got this exalted way of talking about oneself which doesn't really work. That's using Hebrew for nouns. It's never used for verbs or pronouns. We're having Genesis 1. So I think the best reading is there's, it's an early indication of plurality within God. I don't think the author knows about the Trinity as we do. of God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Genesis 1 verse 2 talks about the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. He has some concept of plurality, and I think he's hinting at that. And therefore, I do think there's something to be said about um, male and female within humanity being the diversity within the unity of humanity in the same way that the persons within the Godhead are diversity within the unity of the being of God. So I think that's probably what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't thought that long. Um, there's various places. I mean, in the story of Babel, there'll be let us again. Let us go down and see what they're doing. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think But yeah, you, you get glimmers all over the places. It's this you know, progressive revelation. So as the story of the Bible goes on, things become more clear. But you get the beginnings of it. So yeah, there are others in there. You're absolutely right. I think generally speaking, so the question was, could God, could the image of God be that God looks like us physically, so spiritually, given that humans have a, there's a human form we kind of recognise? I think because God is recognised, well, God doesn't have a physical form until he became incarnated as the sun. The sun is still incarnated in heaven now. Um, it's, in a sense, it's almost not possible for us to be physically in the form of God because God doesn't have a physical form. It is cause interesting that when God appears to people, Certainly Jesus, but also in kind of what we call theophanies, so appearances of God to the people of God before the incarnation of Jesus, it's often in a human-like form. There's some angels often coming in a human-like form. But maybe that's just so that people don't run a mile. <laughs> you know, if it looked like some sort of crazy alien, you're not going to stick around and talk, are they? I wonder if that's really functional, not actually, because yeah, that speaks of what God is like. So I think physical arguments or physical perspectives in the image of God just don't quite work with what we know about God, almost, really. Um, it's more just mysterious, we're like him, but we're not told what, how, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, come here first. The, um, you made the point about, the, uh, about God being plural in the Father, Son, and the mm. Spirit. And I think that the, that replicates very much in creation, man and woman, plurality. Mm -hmm. That's man, that's in God's image, yeah. plurality. And I think the preponderance of Scripture also tells you Yeah, so that's a yeah, potentially argument for a relational aspect to the image. Yeah, I think I think you I think of all the arguments that is the one that has some textual warrant 
potentially, but I think it does struggle to handle the later, later references. So I think it's true humanity, but not necessarily part of the image, I think. Are you going to, yeah? Okay, cool. Let's move on to the human constitution. Of what is a human composed? Are we just a body? Are we a body and a soul? Do we also have a spirit? Are the soul and spirit the same thing or different things? And if we do have different things, which one's the most important? Yet again, there are three classic views here. One view is the view of monism, that we are just a body. We are just one thing, and you cannot exist without the body. And so people who take that view would say, when you read of the spirit or the soul in scripture, it's just a word for the wholeness of a human being, which ultimately is of embodied existence. The dichotomy view is that a human has two parts, a body and a soul slash spirit. So they kind of seem to be the, the same thing, just two words used for the same thing. We're two parts. Or the trichotomy view is that a human consists of three parts, the body and the soul and the spirit, with the soul and spirit being different things. Where often the soul is deemed to be the kind of non-physical things like um, our feelings, our emotions, our will, our intellect, whereas the spirit is the spiritual part of you, which then can kind of connect with God and have a relationship with God. So again, three perspectives, another quick couple of minutes, and we'll just do a couple of minutes because time's a bit tight on your table of which of those views do you think is correct? Monism, dichotomy, trichotomy, one, two, three parts, and why do you think, it's a key question, why do you think what you think about that? It's for us, three minutes. <laughs> Right. Sorry to not give you long, but hoping we'll get through to the end of the notes. I think we will. We'll take another straw poll and see if you're as indecisive on this as, uh, as you were about the um, <coughs> image of God. I do have a... I actually do fit into one of the categories for this, unusually for me, so I would put my hand up. Sorry, no, yeah, no, no, my hands are so firmly down. Who would like to take a monist view, the view of monism, one part, one person... This is fascinating. Almost every group I do this with, one person is brave enough. Well done. Well done. Um, a dichotomy of you. Human is two parts. Oh, not many. Okay. Four and a half, three and a half. Uh, and a trichotomy of you. Human consists of three parts. Oh, interesting. Vast, vast majority. Which is, I think, uh, yeah, is a very common view uh, among Christians, I think. Let's ask the important question, what does the Bible say? Unfortunately, this is... The conclusion is not the working. If we had a whole day together, we would uh, have an activity looking at the text together. So you might want to look up these things afterwards to check. You think it's a fair reading? Uh, you'll, well, you'll find out. That's what I'm going to go walk you through. Um, I'm not going to say it too quickly. I might be mutiny, given the number of hands to the last one. Um, human existence... Oh, no, sorry. Humans do consist of, at very least, a physical element, the body, and a non-physical element or physical elements. So I don't think the monitor you can work... And there's a few reasons for that. One is that human existence continues after death, i.e. outside of the body. So when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, Julie, today you'll be in paradise, that will be a disembodied thing because his body is going to be there on the cross or in a tomb or a pit somewhere, but he's still going to be alive. Paul says we'd rather be away from the body at home with the Lord. Well, if you can be at home with the Lord while you're away from the body, you must still exist but be outside of the body. So death as the separation of body and this non-physical thing or things... Um, seems to show there must be at least two elements. And death, yeah, I think is defined as the separation of the non-physical from the physical. That's really interesting, actually. So biblically speaking, death isn't the end of existence, because no one ceases to exist when they die. It's just that your non-physical element or elements are separated from the physical element. Hence, in Genesis, when Rachel, the favoured wife of Jacob, dies, we're told, as her soul was departing, in brackets, for she was dying. So what's dying? Your soul is departing from your body. Again, Paul, rather be away from the body at home from the Lord. Got a sense of separation from the body. But I think the non-physical element is called both, both soul and spirit, and these seem to be the same thing. It's based on a dichotomist, a two-part view. This is because the terms can be used interchangeably. So Isaiah 26, my soul yearns for you in the night, my spirit within me earnestly seeks you. It's an example we call parallelism, where there's two lines saying the same thing, but you vary the words for artistic style. My soul, my spirit, doing the same thing, because they are the same. Very similarly, Mary saw the Magnificat in Luke 1. My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. Same thing, referring to the same part of oneself, soul and spirit. In John 12, Jesus says, now is my soul troubled, 
And in John 13, the narrator tells, tells, narrator tells us Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Sees it as the, the same thing. You'd also struggle to find any consistent differentiation between the two. So the idea that the, uh, which way around is it, that the um, soul is the non-physical feelings, will and intellect stuff, the spirit is a bit that connects with God. You just can't make that case biblically. There's no consistent differentiation made between the two. There are two difficult texts, and this may be why uh, the, dichot- the trichotomy theory is very popular in this room. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which sounds like we've got a spirit and a soul and a body, and he's praying for each one of them. But I think, especially given the weight of the rest of Scripture, Paul here is piling up terms for emphasis. He's not saying literally about this is the parts of you. He's saying just that, that every part of you may it be. In the same way that Jesus does that when talking about how we should love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. We mark our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And the mark one's helpful. We don't go, oh yes, well Jesus means we have a heart and a soul and a mind and a strength. That's not what he's saying. We just get, he's piling up these terms. Every single part of you, may it love the Lord your God. Paul's saying, may every single part of you be... Um, or they be sanctified uh, and kind of uh, devoted to God in that way. We get blameless, sorry, yeah, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think he's, hyperbolically speaking, is using emphasis to make that point. I think what's similar happening in Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. Well, dividing soul and spirit kind of makes this sound like they are two different things, but I think actually the focus of the passage in context is on the, the power of the word of God to penetrate, to penetrate deep into and to impact and, and work into a heart. The point isn't on the word of God's power to separate or to kind of distinguish and divide in that way. And I think the joints and marrow thing is helpful. Joints and marrow aren't really separable, I think. I'm not a biologist again. I think, you know, I mean, joints and bone, oh, sorry, marrow and bone presumably are, if I'm understanding correctly, joints and marrow doesn't quite work. It's not a separable thing, I think. So therefore, his point isn't about that. His point is about the, its power to penetrate, to do its work, the word of God, not about separate things being separated. So I don't think a good case can be made from Hebrews 4 that the soul and spirit are different. And certainly given the weight of the rest of the scripture, I don't think that case can be made. So on balance, though, it seems, I like this little phrase, it seems that we should be ontologically dichotomists, but functionally monists. If you want to impress your friends, that's what you can say at church tomorrow. What did you learn yesterday? We should be ontologically dichotomists, but uh, functionally monists. The point being that in in ontology, which is about being stuff, usia, Greek stuff, um, we are two parts. We are a physical body and a non-physical soul slash spirit. It is true that those two things are both there. And so technically speaking, they are divisible, and at death they get divided, which of course is why the ultimate Christian hope isn't, you know, disembodied heaven, it's resurrection. Death is so awful, because it's a separation of body and soul. Resurrection, eventual human hope, is so wonderful, it's reuniting of um, body and soul. We think the thing of, <clears throat> although we are in our being and our essence, and the reality of our two parts, we're meant to be those two parts always joined together. Those two parts are never meant to separate. So functionally, in how we function and how things are meant to be, we're meant to be more on the monist side of being a holistic whole, of it kind of working together. Um, <clears throat> which is why, yeah, salvation is not about uh, the escape of the soul from the body. That's a very, you know, Platonistic, Gnostic, heretical, basically, idea. It's just not what Christian life is about. The body is good, and this links back to Genesis 1. The body is good in Genesis 2. Creation is a good thing. We're not looking for escape from the body, actually. It's a good part of... Um, of who we are. So they're meant to work together. That is why death is so awful. That's why every human being senses the fact that death is wrong, it shouldn't happen. It's why even though in some ways grief is completely illogical, because death is the one thing we always know will happen to everyone, but it affects us so deeply as humans because it's the clearest example of something is not as it should be, because our soul and body should never be separated. We just know something is wrong when that happens. And it's the reason why the, the true end-time hope of Christians is not disembodied eternity with just as just a spirit soul in heaven but it's resurrection new body embodied existence with god that's how we're meant to kind of meant to be where the human constitution is interesting to look at and think about in terms of oh yeah did i bring a question there just uh, I, I think we kind of came to the same point just if you really wanted to stretch the, the three things um, 
things we're talking about is like the third part being the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, and that in us. Yeah, yeah. If you really want to Yeah. Yeah, which people often do. I, I think my nervousness is just, you know, we don't become quasi-divine when we get saved. We're not Mormons who would think you are heading towards being divine when you're saved. Um, so sometimes people say it to me, my little pushback is, absolutely the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We're now the temple of the Holy Spirit with the promised land and all the wonderful stuff. But he is completely distinct from us still. He's not morphing with us. He's making his dwelling place with us. Um, and of course, that won't be true. He won't be dwelling in us in the way in the new creation. He won't need to because his presence will be so clear everywhere in that sense so so yeah do i have a body soul and spirit yes but the spirit is not mine to keep so i'm not, not going to claim it's part of me i guess is but you're right and i think that's one of that's one of the reasons why the most common view among christians and churches is the trichotomy view and just a lot of people have been taught it well i just don't think there's biblical evidence for it, actually it's one of those funny things it's become mainstream it's just i can't see the evidence for it but that's also part of why people think that yeah if we think about um, kind of secular understanding of what it means to be human, this is particularly interesting when it comes to, I, uh, to identity. You can already kind of see, or there's certainly the dichotomy thing you can see in the personhood thing of a human being and a person, two separate things. But you get it hugely in identity because modern secular conceptions of identity are quite dualist as two parts. That we have a body and we have an internal true self. And the true self is often prioritised as the source of identity. So it's what we might call like internal identity formation. There's different ways of ask, answering the question, how do I know who I am? How do I make my identity? And lots of people in our culture still have external identities. It's based on what other people think of them, or really more what they think other people think of them, based on how well they do, and achievements and career, education, all that kind of stuff. But increasingly, we work from a place of internal identity, especially younger generations would where how you feel inside or who you feel yourself to be inside is all that matters and that trumps anything externally. So if it's a really low view on the body, the body is just an annoying thing that our true self is trapped in and sometimes the body is very misleading and doesn't match the true self and the true self inside of us is who we really are and that needs to be embraced and expressed to, to find who we are and to live that out. So that hugely influences secular views and sexuality. It's, I think the most important thing that underpins a secular view of sexuality is this internal identity. The idea that our sexual orientation, the internal feeling of attraction to people, is our true self, and so it is our identity. So therefore, that's why gay and straight and bisexual and asexual, pansexual are identity words and identity markers in our, in our culture. And therefore, it is our internal fear, sorry, that makes our identity, and that flows into, well, identity, you need to act on your identity to find fullness of life. So that flows into pushback of you can't deny who I am, you can't say that some people are not able to act on their sexual desires in a legitimate, God-honouring um, way. And therefore, if our internal identity, our internal feelings are the true self, we let that dictate who we should or shouldn't have a sexual relationship, not with our body. Because arguably, our bodies are very clearly directional in... Given that sex is about procreation and creates procreation, if we listen to the body, it'd be quite clear what type of person another person should have sex with. There's a certain way it works to produce... to, repro to procreate, rather, to reproduce. Um, but actually, because we listen to the internal identity narrative, the narrative goes, I'm not going to let my body dictate as a source of authority how I should engage sexually. Actually, my internal feelings are what I think should. So you kind of say people listen to the soul-spirit kind of thing, the internal thing, rather than the body. It's a very negative view of the body. It doesn't matter what the body says about how I'm orientated to, uh, to connect sexually with another being. Actually, it matters what I find inside. Or in gender, it's slightly more obvious to gender in a sense. Gender identity, as it's now called, the internal feeling of being a man or woman or being masculine or being feminine, is deemed part of the true self, is deemed identity. And therefore, it needs to be embraced and expressed and lived out. So that's why the secular affirming approach in our society is if you feel yourself internally to be of a gender that doesn't match your biological sex, then the body is the thing that should change to match the internal, not vice versa or kind of anything else. Because the body, again, is an annoying distraction. If it's a result of random mutations and natural selection with no God involved, why should you let the body dictate who you are? What matters is what you feel inside. And so, yeah, so we listen to the 
internal self rather than the body. So a, a secular approach, uh, affirming approach to transgender, which will say that transitioning to live in line with what you feel inside rather than what your body says is the right thing and the helpful thing, is based on a very two-part view of body and true self being separate, a kind of dichotomist view, and preferencing the internal true self over the body. So it's in some sense, it's got right the fact that we're two parts, but it's not living the functionally monospy. It's not kind of um, living it together. And so this whole thing of modern identity and building identity based on what we find inside and then expressing that regardless of what our body says or people say or community or history say or anything else says is very different from the biblical picture where our two parts are meant to be intertwined and they're, the, they're one and the same in a sense because they're meant to work together, they're meant to be um, kind of kept together and the body is good. This is why it's so important that we recognise we're created beings and creation is good. The body is good. The body is not a distraction from my true self. The body is part of my true self. And so through my physical body, God speaks to me about who I am, speaks to me about my true identity. We're not meant to. We don't need to pick them against each other in this kind of competition. Actually, um, they're a gift of God working together for us. And so reclaiming an appreciation of the goodness of the body is vital for understanding Christian and sexual, um, Christian sexual and gender ethics. And also realising that that's the way the Bible views it and how secular, views secular people view identity is vital to engaging in conversations about sexuality and gender. Often with non-Christian people we talk over each other because it's our, we don't realise our fundamental understanding of what it means to be human is just fundamentally different. And so you kind of clash. Um, because for them, it's like, well, this is who I am. This is an identity thing. How can you possibly deny that? It's actually, you have to work on the who I am bit, not on the what's what I wrong bit, anything like that. And also, if you kind of look at Christians who take an affirming position to same-sex relationships and marriage or um, gender transition, almost always identity language is more prominent than good biblical arguments. If you read the books of people who've moved to a position affirming same-sex marriage, they don't have good biblical arguments, frankly. Uh, but what they do have is, well, this is who I am, well, this is who people are, how can we deny people the chance to be who they really are about their identity? Because they've totally believed the cultural lie that who we are is what we find inside, not who we are is what God says over us, as those made in the image of God, and for the redeemed people of God, those who are made, or those who are adopted as the children of God. So it's, it's vitally, vitally important. It's, I just think it's the most important thing really for us to get in terms of response on those two cultural issues, particularly, and on others, actually, kind of... Um, you can do some interesting thinking about social media and busyness and different things. Um, polyamory, actually, with the next one. You know, if, if I find in myself the desire to have romantic and sexual relationships with more than one person at a time, that's who I am. You know, it's my sexual orientation. How can you deny that to me? Why should my body indicate that I'm made to only pair with one person? You know, that, that will be the next thing. Um, just yeah, throw out there. It's not far off. That'll be the next thing. Um, is already more accepted than we think, actually. It's all the same kind of philosophical underpinning, same thinking. So we need to reclaim the goodness of the body. The body is a source of authority. All this stuff. I can go on a big tangent there, but I won't. Um, a few minutes left. Wonderful. Any questions, comments, observations, clarifications? Yeah. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, And the Lord God formed men out of the dust of the ground, and bread into the nostril, the bread of life. And man became a living soul. Mm. And man became a living soul. Yeah, become your living being in some translations. Yeah, so some people would say here's um, here is where the body gains the soul. There's two parts, two parts put together, which is Potentially fair game. The complexity is the, the living being, the nefesh chaya, is also used for animals in the um, Noah story. So animals, I think it's fair to say, biblically don't have a soul spirit in the way that we do. Yeah, I'm not going to pick too much there. Um, but they are used with the same language. And therefore, I don't, we can't put too much on that. I think what I'm saying. You can't pin too much on that because the same thing is said of animals elsewhere. And actually, the nefesh haya really is about the throat and about things that breathe. So basically, all the nefesh hayas die in the flood because they're the ones that breathe the air who can't breathe when they're underwater. So, yes, it's kind of soul and body stuff, but actually, it's more about breathing. <laughs> it's disappointingly more boring than we might want it to be, I think. Yeah. Um, in Colossians, 
terms, it talks about the image of God, so Christ being in God. Yeah. And uh, in 1 15, so it, and it says that a lot of that passage is about what, um, what he does in the functional aspects of, of creating things and of um, reconciling it to people and, and that kind yeah. of um, functional stuff. How does that relate to? <laughs> well, you guys know how does it relate to, does it? So this, sorry, Colossians 1 talks about Christ being the image of God and also stuff he does of creating, redeeming people. What's your thought going to be? Does that suggest a functional reading of the image of God? Uh, I had never thought of that. Interesting. Um, I think I wouldn't go too far down that road because I think the image thing here is about him perfectly representing God as the incarnate son rather than a Genesis 1 illusion, albeit it's hard not to hear Genesis 1, I do admit and I think the functions he's performing there aren't anything like the functions we're called to perform in Genesis 1. Creating, redeeming are the two things very much that he does and we don't do. Um, so I think, yeah, I, think I wouldn't see too much warrant for drawing too much there. I do think Colossians 1, in the conjunction with Colossians 3, about re- being renewed in the image of your creator, is the strongest case for a, the image was lost and is, is no... Um, restored in salvation. That's the one that people of my view have to really wrestle with. But I think you're being told you're restored in the image of your creator just two chapters after you've been told he's the image of the invisible God, the one through whom all things were created. So who's the creator in Colossians? Christ. You're being conformed to the image of Christ not to the image of the Genesis 1 God. So I still think the case can be made but I do recognise that's the strongest case against my view. <laughs> yeah. That's right, a definition of what the soul is. Oh, I guess it's the non-physical element of a human. Because the body is the physical element, the soul is the non-physical element that will continue to exist after separation from the body and for the interim, the intermediate state will go to heaven to be with God as a as born again believer. See, I, I wouldn't want to go much further than the non-physical part of a human being. Because I think what I don't think we can do is distinguish, you know, these bits are true of the soul, these bits are true of the body. And the Bible tells us that. And that's, we, we start to become functional dichotomists rather than functional monists if we do that. Yeah, just the same word for the same kind of, well, for, for the same thing. Yeah, two words used for the same thing. I think that is, and that is what the biblical material would point us towards. Yeah, a bit like the conversation I had earlier, we've received the Holy Spirit, God himself as Holy Spirit makes his dwelling place in us, but that is God living in us, that's not a part of us, that doesn't constitute part of our identity. So the Holy Spirit lives in me, but that is distinct, he lives in me, but that is distinct from my having a spirit. Um, just so it happens that they both use the same kind of language. 